Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in Acts chapter 2. We have spelled out our vision for what we want to be as a church, literally spelled it out in an acronym, PRAISE. And the letter I stands for impactful and outreach. That was certainly a characteristic of the early church, the first church in Acts chapter 2. And uh, it it reads kind of like a a footnote or a postscript in the last verse of that chapter where we read in verse 47, they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The miracle of salvation in the early church was a daily occurrence. It was a common thing. It was a routine thing. Day by day by day, people's lives were being transformed. So let me ask you, is that happening in your sphere of influence? Is that happening in our church? And if not, why not? And we've been spending several weeks evaluating that by looking at four issues. Number one is our mission. Our mission statement is to know Him and to make Him known. And we spent an entire message showing that that is God's mission for everyone all the way through history. From Genesis to Revelation, God's mission is to enjoy His grace so that we might extend His glory. To be blessed so that we might be a blessing. To know Him and to make Him known so that the culmination of it all in the book of Revelation is those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathering together to praise God. Now that's not just our mission as a church. That's your mission as an individual. This is your personal mission. And so the question is, are you living missionally? In all that you do, are you knowing Him and making Him known? You know, we, we ought to be bumping into each other to accomplish this mission. And the reason we're not is found in the second point, and that is our disconnect. We seem to be good at disconnecting the first part of our mission from the last part. We often approach knowing Him as an end in itself. And so we prioritize church participation and Bible study. We prioritize reading a good book or fellowship. But we minimize reaching our lost neighbor for Christ. We minimize reaching the nations We prioritize knowing Him, and we minimize making Him known. We're like the lepers in 2 Kings 7, who go to the enemy camp, and it's deserted, and they leave behind a starving city. And they find all the goodies in that that camp, and they start stockpiling the goodies, rather than sharing them with a starving world. 
we're like a football team and we love to huddle, but we never break and go run a play. We get aggravated at that tired play clock. It keeps going off. We need to get rid of that play clock so we can really play the game. No, you're playing games because we huddle to know him in order to do what? To break and make him known throughout this world. Some suggest that happened in the early church. Their mission was to begin in Jerusalem and then to go to Judea and Samaria and the remotest part of the earth. We get to Acts chapter 8, they're still in Jerusalem. They're growing bigger and bigger and bigger and they're staying in Jerusalem. And what is it that caused them to go out to Judea and Samaria? Persecution. Persecution drove them out, scattered them out, fulfilling the mission. And I wonder if they would have just stayed in Jerusalem if God hadn't allowed the persecution to drive them out to fulfill the mission. So that's our disconnect, which brings us thoroughly to our excuses. How do we justify the disconnect? How do we justify our selfishness? How do we justify that we're all about knowing him and not so much about making him known? Well, the reality is, if you're like me, you make excuses. We started looking at three of them last time. The first is, I'm not called. I'm not called. God has chosen a select few, and he has called them to make him known. They're missionaries, they're pastors, they're professionals. But I'm not one of those, so I'm not called. And we we draw lines in Scripture, and we assign the privileges of Christianity to everyone, and we assign the obligations of Christianity to just a few. We look at a passage like Matthew 28 where Jesus commands us, go and make disciples, and we say, that's talking to professionals. That's not talking to me. But we take a command like Matthew 11 where Jesus says, come unto me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And we say, that's me. Come as me, go as others. We look at a promise in Acts 1.8 where Jesus says the Spirit will come and empower you to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And we say, that's talking to other people. But when Jesus makes a promise like he does in John 10.10 that we will have abundant life, we say, that's me. The privileges are for all. The responsibilities are for few. Let me tell you something. If you're making the excuse I'm not called, let me just tell you this morning that you were created by God to go, you were saved to go, and you have been commanded to go. You are called. You're just not listening. It is God's mission for you to know him and to make him known. Second excuse, I'm not able. You ever say that? I can't do it. I'm not able. I said last time, that's not an excuse, that's a fact. God never asked you to be able. He asked you to be available. 
And if you look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, it says, the Lord was adding to their number. That's passive. You don't have to do the work. The Lord does the work. You have to go. When Jesus said go, he said go and make disciples, and lo, I am with you. When you go, he's with you. There is no such thing as one-on-one evangelism because he's always there. When you start to speak the gospel, he shows up. When someone is saved, it's him working and adding them to the body of Christ. That's why I love that he tells us we have to be witnesses. Some of us think we're prosecuting attorneys. You're just a witness. What does a witness do? A witness tells what has happened, tells what he has seen. I say, this is what God did in my life. God does the convicting. God does the saving. He adds to their number. You just have to be a witness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read this in verse 5. Paul says, what, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Paul said, I threw some seed in the ground. Apollos came along and watered it, but God was causing the growth. And here's his conclusion in verse 7. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. You're not anything. God is everything. But then two verses later, here's what he says in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. I love that. We're not anything, but we are God's fellow workers. We are nothing, but we're necessary. You see, you don't have to be able to qualify to be nothing. You don't have to be able, you just have to be available because God does all the work. You just go. You just make him known. That's why that verse in Matthew 11 that you love so much says, Come, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Remember what Jesus says next? Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy. What's a yoke? In that day, a yoke was a dual harness that you put two animals in to to pull a plow. And the Bible's very clear. You're not to be unequally yoked together. You weren't to put an ox and a donkey together because they wouldn't work together. So you're to put two oxen in a yoke together. But you know what? I am thankful that God has called me to be unequally yoked with Jesus Christ. Because we get in the yoke and we look next to us and there's Jesus. And he's doing all the work. In fact, he says, pick your feet up because you're dragging us. Because I want to accomplish more. You don't have to be able. You simply have to be available. So what you're calling an excuse is actually an asset. Because when you recognize you're not able, you know what you do? You say, I am yoking myself with Jesus Christ. I am depending on His Spirit. 
I am looking to God to do the adding. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus told them, you're going to be my witnesses, you're going to start in Jerusalem, you're going to end up in the remotest part of the earth. You know what they did? Jesus left, went into heaven. You know what they did before the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost? In Acts chapter 1, it says they were praying. Why? Because they were saying, we can't take the gospel around the world. We can't do this. We're not able. So we're going to pray. And the Spirit came and enabled them, empowered them to accomplish that task. What's the principle of fruit bearing? Jesus said in John 12, 24, a grain of wheat must fall into the earth and die. And if it dies, it bears much fruit. So what's the principle of fruit bearing? Death. So you don't have to be able. You have to be dead. You see, when we talk about knowing him, we need to understand that the way Paul did. Listen to what Paul said in Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, most of us stop the verse right there. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection so I can walk on water. We stop right there. But what's the verse say? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection And the fellowship of his suffering, what does fellowship mean? To share in common with. I want to share with him his sufferings, being conformed to his what? Death. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. You see, knowing Jesus is not just an intellectual thing. It is a transforming thing. And the more I know him, the more I will be like him. And the more I know him, the more I will be like him in his what? In his death. So the measure of how much I know the Lord is that the more I know him, the less you will see me. Right? So when I stand around and say I'm not able, what you're really saying is, I don't want to give up my life. Because the only thing he's asking you to do is die to yourself so that he can live his life through you. And when you do that, when you know him the way Paul knew him, then you will say this with Paul in Acts 20, 24, where he says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What was his course? To testify of the gospel. What was his mission? To make him known. And how did he accomplish that? Practically speaking, he says, I do not consider my life of any account to myself. I've already died to myself, so I don't hang on to my life. I don't cherish my life. 
See, God doesn't need more of you. He needs less of you. And when you understand that, when you have died to yourself, then practically speaking, you will say, my life doesn't matter to me anymore. What matters to me is making him known. It's not about me. It's about him. And you will stop saying, I'm not able. Because all he's asking you to do is lay down your life. Third excuse. And this one I hear a lot. I don't know enough. You ever say that? I can't share the gospel. I don't know enough. I'm afraid they'll ask me a question I don't know the answer to. So I don't know enough. Well, let me ask you this. When are you going to know enough? When you get to heaven? I've known people that have been saved for 40 years, and they're still saying, I don't know enough. How much do you have to know to make him known? You have to know him, right? I love the woman at the well in Acts chapter 4. Remember her? She went to her town, and here was her message. John 4, 29. Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Messiah, is it? That's not a very powerful message. Come see this guy. He told me everything I've done. He can't be the Messiah, can he? And what happened? Half the city came out to Jesus. What did she know? She wasn't even sure he was the Messiah. But she knew enough to make him known. You remember the blind man in John chapter 9? Here was his testimony. He said, one thing I know. Don't know anything else. One thing I know. I was blind, and now I see. How much do you have to know to be a witness? You simply have to know what Jesus Christ has done for you. If Jesus Christ has changed your life, and if you, if you have come into a relationship with him, then you know enough to make him known. And you know enough to be a witness of his. You see, to an unbeliever, if you're a Christian, to an unbeliever, you are a spiritual giant. I mean, think back to when you weren't a believer. Anybody who knows the Lord is a theologian compared to somebody who does not know him. So I want to challenge us this morning to drop the excuses. Stop saying I'm not called because you are called. Stop saying I'm not able because you don't have to be able. You simply have to lay down your life. Let go of yourself. You know the thing that keeps us from sharing the gospel most often is our pride? And where is pride based? It's in me. And when I lay down my life, guess what I lay down? My pride. And I'm no longer concerned about me. I don't want to make me known. I want to make him known. And then stop saying I don't know enough. Because if you know him, and he has made a difference in your life, then you know enough to make him known. Which brings us to the fourth point. Our impact. How do we 
extend his glory? How do we make him known? Now, if I handed out paper and pad to everybody and we all wrote down how we think the strategy ought to work for making him known, I would guess that the most prominent would be this. We need to get the biggest names to draw the biggest crowds to the biggest events. We need to develop mega churches and mega conferences. Say, wait a minute, we're already doing that. There's nothing wrong with that, but let me tell you, that is not the bottom line. In declaring his glory and making him known to the ends of the earth. When you look at Jesus' strategy, it was very different than that. Now, he, he drew the big crowds. And he spoke to the big crowds. But at the end of the day, Jesus invested in a few men. In fact, sometimes when he got big crowds, like in John chapter 6, he started preaching controversial things, and it tells us the, the crowds went away. He lost the crowds. Jesus' strategy, listen, Jesus' strategy for impacting the world was to invest in a few people who would think like he did, who would see things like he did, who would feel what he feels, who would love like he did, who would teach like he did, who would serve like he did. That was his strategy. In fact, turn over a few pages to John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, it's the night before the cross, and Jesus is praying. And this entire chapter is his prayer to the Father. And if you notice verse 4, he says at the end of that verse, I have accomplished the work. I have finished the work that you gave me to do. Now, what's the work? What was Jesus' mission that he came to accomplish? Well, let's read on. Look at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word, for they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them, and they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me me. Jesus says, I've accomplished the work. What is the work? I manifested your name. I made you, God, known to these few men. In fact, I went through this prayer in John 17, and I circled the pronouns them, they, and those that you have given me And I counted 45 times in this prayer that Jesus is praying for this small group of men. Interesting. You know what's also interesting? In verse 9, he says, I don't pray for the world. 
I want to impact the world, but I'm praying for these few people. And in fact, I'm not even praying for the world. Why not? Verse 18, Jesus says, I have sent them into the world. And the outcome in verse 21, he says at the end of that verse, so that the world may believe. And in verse 23, in the middle, so that the world may know. Did you get that? Jesus made himself known to these 12 guys so that they might go into the world and make him known to the world. That's the mission, to know him and to make him known. In Mark chapter 3, when Jesus chose the 12, here's what it says. And he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out. Did you get that? He picked these 12 so that they would be with him to know him and that he could send them out to make him known. When you read the Gospels, you will discover that during his three-and-a-half-year ministry, Jesus spent more time with these 12 men than everyone else in the world put together. He staked everything on these few guys. And after his death, burial, and resurrection, what was his final challenge to them in Matthew 28? I want you to go and make disciples. I made you my disciples. I want you to go and do the same thing. Now, how do you make disciples? You know, it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't give us a formula for that. He doesn't give us some step-by-step plan on how to impact the nations. What he does is he simply illustrates to us that the way to accomplish that is to invest our lives in other people. So what is your life going to look like if you are fulfilling Matthew 28? What is your life going to look like if you are making disciples? Well, I jotted down five principles that I see in Jesus' ministry that I want to share with you this morning in closing. Number one, disciples are not mass-produced. Jesus is God in flesh, and he could only handle 12. So I would suggest you don't try to handle 24. If Jesus could handle 12, maybe you better look for six. Six people that you can invest your life in. They're not mass-produced. You can't create a factory and crank them out. They're not to be cookie-cutter style. You say, all right, i got a little formula here, and I can make disciples with my cookie-cutter. No. Everybody is supposed to be like Jesus, but guess what? When you look in Scripture, you don't find that disciples look like each other. Peter was a leader, aggressive leader. John was more of a shepherd, a father figure type. They were different in personality, but they were both like Jesus. That's why I love to read the books of the Bible, because you see the personality of these guys come out. When John writes, he writes differently than Paul, and Paul writes different than Peter. In fact, Peter says at one occasion, he had a tough time understanding Paul. 
So these guys are different. No cookie-cutter Christians. Can't mass-produce disciples. Secondly, disciples should be carefully selected. Jesus spent all night in prayer before he chose the twelve. And I would suggest to you that if you're going to invest your life in someone else, that you be prayerful about doing that. In fact, Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that you've heard from me, I want you to entrust to faithful men. Did you get the adjective? Not just anybody, but faithful men. Don't pour your life into someone who is perpetually leaking. Find faithful people and pour your life into them. Now, having said that, let me add this. Three, disciples will drop out. Jesus preached in John chapter 6, and it says as a result of his message, many of his disciples were not walking with him anymore. Those are general disciples. They said, we've had enough. We can't handle that. It's too tough. We're out of here. In fact, of the 12, Jesus admits in John 17, he lost one of them. And that was Judas. So out of the 12, he didn't even keep, keep them all. So you cannot bat a thousand in disciple making because Jesus didn't even do that. You will lose some. You will invest your life in someone and they will disappoint you. You will invest your life in someone and they may walk away from the Lord. Expect that to happen. Fourth, disciple-making is not easy. It's not easy. Jesus lived with these 12 guys for three years. Now, we oftentimes think of that in terms of how cool would it be to live with Jesus? Did you ever think of it in terms of how hard it would be to live with those guys? Living three years... With the disciples, these guys were selfish. They were egotistical. It says every time Jesus got away from them, they fought about who was the greatest. They asked dumb questions all the time. Jesus is living with them. And when he tries to sneak off to get some peace and quiet, what happens? They come looking for him and bring him back. That's not easy to give up three years of your life to invest in somebody else. Making disciples is trying. It's difficult. It's messy. It's slow. It's tedious. Sometimes it's painful. Why? Because it's relational. It's relational. It's not easy. And Jesus said, you have to go. You can't sit on your couch and make disciples. You have to go to them. You can't wait for them to come to you. You can't just invite them. You have to go. And when Jesus says go, I don't think the go is so much of a location that you're going to. You're going to people. You're going to relationships. You're going to build those relationships with people and pour your life into them. And that's never easy. And then fifth and finally... Disciples are not made overnight. Did Jesus say, go and make disciples and baptize them, period? 
then you're done? That would be nice. Lead somebody to Christ, get them baptized, say, see ya. No, Jesus said, go and make disciples, baptizing them, and what? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. You see, when you lead somebody to Christ and see them baptized, that's not the end, that's just the beginning. Because Jesus said, then you need to teach them. Now, when we hear the word teach, we immediately think of a classroom. We immediately think of lecture style in our Western world. And then we come up with another excuse. Well, I'm not a teacher, so I don't have to do that. I'll just lead them to the Lord and turn them over to the church. But Jesus is giving that command to each of us. We're to make disciples, and we are to teach them. You look at Jesus' style. He was the greatest teacher of all. He taught sometimes on a hillside. Sometimes he taught from a boat. Sometimes he taught in the synagogue or the temple. But when it came to the twelve, it was a Q&A. They asked questions. He answered. They would be walking through the grain fields and he would teach in that setting. They'd be sitting around the dinner table and he would begin to teach. They'd walk by a withered olive tree and he'd make a point out of that to teach them. You see, the world was his classroom. But to make the world your classroom, you have to be walking with someone through the world. In Deuteronomy 6-7, we're told these words, I am commanding you today, you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Fathers, you're responsible to teach your sons the Word of God. How do you do that? Sit them in a classroom? No. He goes on and explains. You're to talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You're to talk about the truth of Scripture in the morning when you wake up, in the evening when you're going to bed, when you're sitting down in your house, when you're walking through life. You don't raise your kids overnight. Guess what? You don't disciple people overnight either. It takes walking with them through life. In fact, if you take a new believer and you want to teach them how to pray, how would you do that? Say, well, let's put them in a class on prayer. We'll have a six-week class on prayer. We'll teach them everything they need to know and they'll be fine. If I'm the new believer, you know how I would like to learn how to pray? I would like for you to sit down with me and pray with me and let me learn from you. What's the way, best way to teach a new believer how to study the Bible? Say, we'll put them in a class. I'll tell you what, they'll learn a lot more if you sit down with them and study the Bible with them and share with them how you study the Bible. What's the best way to teach a new believer how to handle temptation? Put them in a classroom? No. Walk through life with them and let them see how you handle temptation. What's the best way to, to show a, a new believer how to raise his kids? Bring them into your house and let them see how you raise your kids. It'll make far greater impact than sitting them in a classroom and drawing it on a chalkboard. You see, 
If you walk through life with another person and they watch you and observe you, they're going to learn far more that way. That's how you teach. You say, well, Dan, that's kind of scary to, to let somebody that close to me because they're going to see that I don't have it all together. They're, they're going to realize that I'm not perfect. Well, maybe you need to make that your first point. I'm not perfect, but I'm going to let you into my world. I'm going to walk with you through life. I'm going to do life together with you. Do you know what it also does? It raises the bar on us. If I'm going to be helping somebody else grow, guess what? It's going to challenge me to be growing as well. I think a good principle to get a hold of is this. You are not responsible to fill somebody else's cup. But you are responsible to pour yours out. So if somebody wants to know how I pray, I sit down and say, this is the way I pray. This is the way I do it. I'm going to pour out my cup and show you this. I'm not responsible to fill your cup, but I'll give you what I've got. You may choose to do it differently, but this is the way I do it. This is how I approach it. That's disciple-making. Pouring our lives into other people. I've been reading the word, the book Radical by David Platt. He made a great point in that he said that oftentimes we are guilty of disinfecting people rather than discipling people. Somebody gets saved and we spray them off, hose them off, bring them into a, a safety deposit box called the church and we put them in there and we say, just stay here, you'll be safe. That's not disciple making. Disciple making is when we go to where they are and we walk with them through their life and we show them how to walk with Jesus where they live. And guess what happens as a result of that? They start making disciples in the context where they are because we haven't pulled them out of their relationships. It's easy to disinfect. We'll just isolate you over here. Much more challenging to disciple by going where people are and walking with them through the challenges of life and showing them how Jesus makes all the difference in that setting. Jesus had 12, narrowed it down to 11. So in closing, let me just ask you, how many people are you investing in? Who can you point to and say, you know what, I am pouring my life into this person to make them more like Jesus Christ. Not more like me, but more like Jesus Christ. As we close our service today, I want you to think about that challenge. Because if you can't come up with people that you're doing that with, then you're not impacting the world for God. You don't have to go to another country to do it. You just need to be pouring into a few people around you who God will use to pour into some more people and multiply that process. And pretty soon we realize we have impacted the nations 
for the glory of God. Let's stand as we close. Prayer. Mm-hmm.